Hello, and welcome to Around the Table, a podcast about food stories from science to everyday life. Amy McLennan, welcome to Lockdown Food. Thank you. Um, you're, you're in Australia. Tell me what's going on with lockdown food in Australia. Well, all sorts of things. I mean, we've seen uh, a lot more takeout delivered at home and a lot more people making sourdough, um, as you might have seen in that part of the world as well. Um, but something that's got me really, really thinking differently is the meat industry. Okay, can you tell us something about meat? Why is it so interesting? Sure. Well, I suppose um, Australians have always had an interesting relationship with uh, meat. Um, I've certainly grown up as a kid watching the Australian pork and beef and lamb ads on television, selling a little part of Australia and Australian identity as much as anything else. Um, And as well, personally, I grew up on a beef cattle farm, so I suppose something like the meat supply chain has always been interesting to me. So partway through the coronavirus Um, pandemic in the early stages, we started to see reports um, in the Australian media, um, amongst other places, of changes happening in the Australian meat industry, and in particular, I suppose, the meat supply chain. And something that really struck me was the the conversation that was going on that was comparing the Australian meat supply chain to the American meat supply chain, and finding, identifying differences, and finding out why the Australian one at the moment looks a little bit more resilient than the American one. So I thought that was pretty interesting. How has lockdown affected the meat supply chains in, in Australia, going on with the Australian-US meat supply chain comparison? Well, I suppose one of the big things in Australia is Australia um, in, in many parts of the industry is a net exporter. Um, and so as a number of exports to places like China have stopped, what we've found is a lot more frozen meat in the supply chain in Australia, but frozen meat in a format that not everybody can use. Um, When meat is frozen for export, um, it's often frozen at kind of commercial levels and commercial quantities, which means it's not necessarily fit for home use. Um, And what that means is if we wanted to repivot it to say the Australian domestic market, you would have to defrost it and recut it. And then I suppose freeze it for transport again. And that kind of process in the world of meat is fraught with all sorts of contamination and food safety complications. Lockdown seems to have exposed a number of forms of inequality and structural violence. Can you uh, uh, say something about that? Definitely. I think one of the other reasons the meat supply chains really come up in Australia is because we've seen a number of kind of pockets of infection um, of coronavirus or COVID-19 infection pop up in um, especially meat supply, um, in those along the meat supply chain and especially in meat processing plants. Um, And when you think about why we might be seeing a concentration of cases in meat processing plants, then it opens a conversation about what kind of conditions people are working in and living in in these kind of um, settings. So if you can imagine um, workers in meat processing plants work 
in high speed, um, close quarters to each other. Um, they work in wet environments um, and it's often very cold, which are both great places to cultivate virus. Uh, but in addition, they're low paid. They're quite often poorly paid. It's a very precarious workforce um, in many places, not only in Australia, but also in Germany and, and in the US. There's no pay for taking time off sick. There's often shared transport to and from work. Um, so something interesting there is the way the virus has kind of exposed uh, the vulnerabilities that come, I suppose, from the structural violence um, across the supply chain and within different professions. I remember from my time in the Cook Islands that there are a lot of Cook Islanders who are working in the in the meatpacking industry. So there's a um, great stratification according to uh, to to, to uh, country of origin. I think. Do you think that that's uh, an issue as well? Absolutely, undoubtedly as well. Um, and again, both in Australia and certainly there's a lot that's been uh, we've started to write about that in in the US and I know in Germany as well. How do you think the um, uh, lockdown will change the meat supply chain? That's another interesting question I'm mulling over too. I'm, we're still at the point with the press where we're hearing a lot more conversations about what's going on um, in real time than what might likely happen in the future. Um, somewhere I'm doing a bit of work at the moment is looking at kind of the future in terms of the use of artificial intelligence and machine learning. Um, and what we've started to see in some supply chains that are already, I suppose, managed by these new technologies is different kinds of outcomes. So if you can imagine, um, rather than a supply chain being a linear kind of chain uh, with a series of links, um, imagine an ecosystem which has multiple farms, um, or I suppose uh, people who kind of grow cows and sheep and chickens, um, and then multiple processing plants or slaughterhouses and then multiple different kind of onward processes and then multiple retail outlets and what these new technologies um, and supply chain technologies in particular um, allow um, those managing supply chains to do is optimize if you like the journey from farms to retail to to our front doors if you like and the way they do that is to draw on data and information about what's happening in real time and what's happened in the past and calculate um, the, the routes that the meat can travel from farm to retailer that in this particular instance um, reduce any costs associated with storage. So they optimize for things moving in the system and they reduce any, any need for storage. And a couple of things that have happened um, in supply chains that we've seen so far um, being managed by these technologies is one, if something in the supply chain stops working, so for example, if meat processing facilities can no longer operate because they've got sick workers, for example, and they have to decontaminate the plant, um, then there is nowhere along the system anymore to store things because the system is optimized to reduce storage at all costs. So on the one hand, we've seen the kind of fragility or, or brittleness of supply chains that are managed in this kind of just-in-time fashion. Um, and at the same time, We've also seen the prediction algorithms uh, get become totally confused with these new types of data coming into the system that they've never seen before and at times giving erroneous recommendations about stock levels or um, projections. So in terms of what will happen in the future, I think there will be both some thinking around whether 
what we thought might be the future of supply chains will need to change, given what we've now learned about the vulnerabilities. Or on the flip side, whether we're likely to see more of this just-in-time supply chain management come through. And um, Stanley, that's where I have, a, I suppose, a question for you that's really started to um, started to swirl around in my head a little bit. Um, back when uh, a few years ago, when I was working in the area of food storage and looking at different kinds of societies, hunter-gatherer, um, agrarian societies, subsistence societies, we see a really close relationship between economic structure and food storage um, and the way that foods are stored and distributed around society. And I wondered if you had any thoughts on what it means to be moving into a kind of society where we've eliminated or we're aiming to eliminate food storage what that means in terms of what kind of economy we might be building or what kind of relationships that might cultivate between people. Okay, thanks for throwing that one back to me. Um, <laughs> but any thoughts about that? Well, I, I guess uh, my thinking goes immediately to the, you know, the physical world and the virtual world, that so much of the physical world is now, now guided by the virtual world. It's very easy to, to find yourself you know, conflicted between the two and the, the uh, um, algorithms creating some spurious uh, predictions which have led to some very important sort of real-time consequences is, is, is a wake-up call. So if things are not stored, everything is constantly in flow. And I would think that the model for that might be that, uh, that of money, where money has become increasingly abstracted across time. And we're quite happy to have abstract money in the form of having our debit cards and credit cards and so on, everything coming out of our bank accounts and, and uh, be, us being happy with the numbers and, and not the notes. Um, the difference is that food is a physical thing and has to enter our bodies somehow. So I think the, the model of everything in flow ultimately stands or falls whether on, on whether the supermarket shelves will be, will be, will be filled or not and with the things that, that we want. Having said that though, you know, if the algorithms can create a kind of Amazon-like, not the river, but the, uh, but the company, uh, Amazon-like um, set of uh, predictions about what people are eating and what they should eat and what they might like to eat if something's not available, then, you know, it, it's scary, but it, it would be um, uh, another turn on the, uh, on the way in which uh, um, food systems are uh, uh, have evolved, so that's uh, off the top of my head, Amy. That's it's interesting, isn't it? Because even um, I mean, every society we've looked at, even hunter gatherer societies, store food somehow, and relationships are built around that. Um, and I wonder what this means for the, the relationships we build between each other or across a society, and whether I mean, I suppose another question is whether does food and food storage cease to be as important when it comes to um, shaping society or food sharing, for example? I'm not sure. I think it'll all come down to national security in the end. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and, and the trade agreements that need to be put in place would need to be ever more sophisticated and ever more inclusive. And ultimately things would stand and fall as to um, whether countries were at peace or were, were at the war of one kind or another, or one kind or another, 
um, with with each other. It's getting very heavy. This 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 stuff. So I think lockdown has certainly created a number of ways of of thinking about things anew, and, and this is this is this is certainly one of them. Amy, can you tell me, has this sort of prediction uh, prediction algorithms giving sort of spurious outputs? Has that had any, to your knowledge, any real real time consequences? I mean, as far as I know, apart from uh, either places having ordered stocks that they realised they didn't need, um, or having um, or having things not arrive that they might not have needed, and then arrive in great quantities later, um, not as far as I know. Although I think, I mean, so for me, some of the things that have come out of it is is a renewed conversation about the need for a human to be in the frame at any point in time, because it's not enough to just let systems run by themselves. So there's a question there around at what point might a person need to intervene and how do we know and what does that intervention look like? Um, and I think um, when it comes to then individual or smaller retailers using these kind of systems, the question is how might they access someone who knows how to understand what the model's been trained on and intervene in the right moment, given that that's a fairly rare skill set still in the ecosystem. Um, I, do, I do know outside of the food chain, I do know that there was some conversation, um, Amazon, the retailer, I think very early on had to make a number of changes because overnight almost the most frequently purchased items on Amazon changed from being what they had been to being hand sanitizer and masks all in very short time periods. So one of the things we might not have noticed, but one of the results of that would be that the things that place platforms like Amazon are recommending to us will have changed because all of their recommendation engines are also based on stock levels and availability and costs. Um, so, so we would see, but not notice the difference in what's being advertised to us and what looks like it's available. It occurs to me that one of the things that could make that kind of just-in-time food system more secure along the Amazon route would be more processed food that has a long shelf life, which, to my mind, wouldn't be a good thing. Any thoughts? Are we likely to see more processed food in the food system in future? Well, it's a great question, and early indications suggest there are multiple possibilities at the moment. So on the one hand, we might well see increased complexity in the food system uh, if we see more food products, so less reliance potentially on farms and more reliance on uh, food production and processing. Then we may well see more complexity in the food system. So as you grow the numbers of processed foods you have, you need more and more processing stages, if you like, which means more and more complexity. And those processing stages are also often referred to as value adding stages. So there's a commercial interest in, in adding complexity and processing to foods. At the same time, we're seeing parts of the system which are really starting to simplify. So there's an example in Germany of a butcher uh, who's set up a business which is going directly to farms and slaughtering animals on the farm, which of course reduces the amount of complexity in the system, everything from live animal transport right through to um, how the foods and meats are processed in, in factories. And that's, uh, as I understand it, quite successful. Now, of course, there are all sorts of implications around these two possible futures, for example, and costs and equity. Uh, so the cost at the moment of the, the simpler system to individual consumers are significantly higher. 
which means you may well see um, differential access um, and availability for people with different levels of money. And indeed, we already see um, the way in which inequality and inequity and poverty play into nutritional health. And there's every possibility that if these two futures were to eventuate, that those kind of um, demographic health patterns might continue to be amplified. However, there's every possibility that we might also see emergent properties of the system and new things um, that we haven't seen before. So for example, since the start of the year, the artificial meat product market has grown by something like 40% around the world. And that's fairly significant. Now these kind of products on the one hand still require processing, so we still require a fairly complex food supply chain in order to make them a possibility. And on the other hand, they have interesting potential when it comes to things like sustainability um, and environmental impact of our food chain. So they can potentially reduce the carbon footprint, for example, of our foods compared to meat. Now, of course, you do have to consider the carbon footprint of the transport systems and production systems that go into them as well. So it may not be as neat and tidy as it first appears. Um, and at the same time, they have the potential to improve health. We know that reducing the amount of meat we eat uh, for all sorts of reasons can improve health. So I suppose system shocks like the one we are seeing now create all sorts of new possibilities. And it's really up to us uh, to a certain extent to think about what we might like the future of our food supply chains and food systems to look like and what decisions we might like to be making now in order to facilitate that future. And certainly after the events uh, that we've seen in Australia between bushfires and COVID-19 in the last six months, I have to hope that sustainability and human well-being and equity of access um, and responsibility towards each other and community are really up there on our priority list. It's an endless complex problem. McLennan, <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much. <laughs> no worries. Thanks for having me. Around the Table is a personal production of Dr. Tess Bird and Professor Stanley Uliazak, who are anthropologists of food and nutrition and of household uncertainty and insecurity. The opinions and ideas expressed are solely those of the contributors and podcasters and do not reflect the opinions of any university body. The music in this episode is by Blue Dot Sessions. Thank you for tuning in.